Eov number four. Chapters 25 to 35. In these chapters, we have two main presentations. We have Eov's last speech, which is uh, five chapters. And then we have Elihu uh, finally um, interjecting and uh, opening up, speaking his opinion. He is very frustrated about everything he's heard, both from Eov and from the friends. And he is the one that actually presents arguments that are correct. And after Elihu finishes speaking, nobody refutes him. And then HaKadosh Baruch Hu gets involved and speaks for himself. So we are speaking, this is really the summer, summary. Eli, Eli, uh, Eov puts his entire presentation in order and, and uh, reiterates that which his friends just can't seem to figure out and understand. And as we said, and then, uh, and then Elihu starts with a whole new approach, a brand new approach. So, up until this point, where we are at till now is that there is the friends, each one in a different style, has made their one and only argument in various forms, bolstering it and getting more emphatic and angry about it as time goes on. The only argument they can muster, the only one that comes to their minds, the only thing that makes any sense to them, in other words, the, just the, the one argument that seems to, you know, kind of be uh, the, the, the one they need to employ for, as Eov says, for other reasons, is this simple, simplistic, and untrue argument that a person's guilt or innocence is evident by their life circumstances. Okay, that's the argument. This is a paganistic argument. It is alive and well, by the way, in the Eastern cultures, uh, in the Avodah cultures, the cultures that say, if you're suffering, obviously you are cursed by God. God is cursing you. God hates you. God is punishing you. Maybe God wants you to improve. That's possible also. But to the degree that you are still suffering is the degree that you still are guilty. And, uh, and it's very convenient. It's a very convenient argument because you can hate the underdog. And you can hate the victim, because obviously God hates them. So if you go to Tibet, well, I don't know if it's the case any, anymore, but we saw a movie about 15 years ago called Blind Sight. Blind Sight is a movie about the, the epidemic of blindness in the children in Tibet. They're born sighted, and by six they go blind. Huge amount of children go blind. But in Tibet, which is a paganistic culture, okay, other than the Dalai Lama and his people in their temples over there, um, they, uh, they attribute this to the fact that these children are clearly, it's obvious, they are blind because the snake god has cursed them. And if the snake god has cursed them for sins in their previous lives, obviously, because they're children, then this is their karma. Their karma, this is their retribution. This is their cleansing. And if the snake god has cursed them with blindness and they are being cleansed, and this, this is their karma, this is their destiny... Who am I to interfere to heal them? If I heal them, I'm interfering with the will of the gods, and therefore they will just have to come back again to suffer a different fate. So I don't feed the hungry, and I don't heal the sick because I don't interfere with God. 
And that leads to an enormous, enormous cruelty, vicious cruelty, and it's all because of blaming the victim, because the argument is your station in life, your situation in life, is an indication, it's proof of your guilt or innocence in God's eyes. This is the argument, the only argument they can muster up until this point. And we have already spoken about how Eov has refuted this. He went to long lengths in the previous chapters to describe how wicked people, corrupt people, people that exploit children and the the weak and the hungry and the old and the sick, prosper. They have beautiful lives and they die a beautiful death and they have beautiful funerals and they have the fanciest grave in the cemetery and they never get harsh treatment. And so he essentially refutes this idea. And where we, leave, where we enter now in chapter 25 is that Bildad, it's a very, very short chapter, only six psukim, he concedes. He concedes and he says that, uh, you're right, there is no way to judge a person's merit by their fate. But once he concedes, he has no alternative explanation then for what's happening. He's... He never speaks again, and Eov starts to speak. The words are in Perak Chaf Hei, and Perak Chaf Hei Pasuk Gimel. He says, Ami lo yakum orehu. On who does God's light not rise? It's true, God's light rises on all people. Everybody is actually, so to speak, seen by God graced by God, and the fact that somebody's situation is miserable doesn't constitute that God's light is not upon him. So he concedes, but he has nothing else to offer. He's left in utter confusion. So then what does it all mean? So, here comes Eov. Eov's 10th speech runs through chapter 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31, and this is, in first we'll do the overview, this is essentially the progression of his ideas. First he says to them, 27, Don't make a mistake. You are very, very arrogant. My recognition and appreciation of God is not less than yours. It's much greater than yours. It surpasses yours by a million miles. I do know that God runs the world and that I can't understand him as you're telling me that I have a chutzpah for asking to understand him. I know I can't understand God. But I also know something you don't realize. I will not reduce myself to lying on behalf of God, flattering God, and we'll go in and we'll see. Eov accuses them of being liars and, and, and flatterers of God, which he th- says God detests. They are lying by saying, A, that they understand how Hashem runs the world, and it's a simple equation. They are lying by accusing an innocent person of being a Russia, and they do all this to flatter God and say that God is, that they understand God's ways and it makes so much sense. And, uh, and uh, the essential message is they refuse to admit that they don't understand the ways of Hashem. And that's the ultimate arrogance. They say, we do understand the ways of Hashem, and it's very simple. He's punishing you because you're guilty. That's, Hashem is very just. They, they refuse to admit, blaming Eov that he won't accept the ways of Hashem, It is them who absolutely will not consider the possibility that they don't understand the ways of Hashem. So then he goes on in chapter 28 to say, man's wisdom is limited. We will never get to Chachma. I get that. I know that. We will never have real Chachma. 
we will never understand the ways of Hashem. I, I know that, and this is a, an example of it, that they're not understandable, and I even underst- I accept it. But this is what's bothering me. This is what's bothering me. Why is it so hard for me? Why am I demanding an explanation if I too know that, that no one can understand the ways of Hashem? I'm not a fool, I get that. So why do I want an explanation so much? So he goes in chapter 29 to a beautiful description, and he's a poet. He has the gift of expression. His language is beautiful, and if we go through the parak some other time, pasuk by pasuk, in a real study of the Sefer, you get to see the gift of expression that Eov has been graced with. And he said, he begins to describe poetically his former life. This is what bothers him so much. His former life where he was so respected. He was so respected that people would, would defer to him in all occasions. And the reason he was respected is because he deserved it. His life was the life of a role model. He was just, not like they said. He was not a Russia. He was just. He treated everyone with extreme dignity. He was fair. He encouraged everybody. He was there for the poor and the weak and the downtrodden at every turn. He never neglected the lowest in society. He, brought, he did what he could for every human being. He never shirked his responsibility. He was beloved. He was a teacher. He was an encourager. And he speaks of that was the role he played. That was the role he played. And so now, in chapter 30, in contrast, he speaks about the utmost disgrace and humiliation that he is undergoing. How the lowest people in society who scrounged in with their hands in the dirt were disgracing him. And he wonders if a human being's in the most precious possession is their dignity, Take away from a person their dignity, their sense of self-worth, of some type of self-respect, of value. They cannot live. And how is it, this is so confusing, that he who gave so much respect to every human being on behalf of God, only made a Kiddush Hashem all day, every day, brought people to love Hashem with his conduct. How he who gave so much dignity to the lowest human being should be the object of scorn by the lowest human beings. Why would Hashem do this? This actually seems to undermine Hashem's own purposes in the world. What does Hashem gain from this? What could be the benefit? He bemoans his lost covenant, and he says, look, my gifts that you've given me, that my speech, my vision, that I've used all my life to encourage people, to build people up, to dignify people. Do you know what I'm using my speech for now? To scream and to yell and to complain and to express my misery and my desire to die. That's what I'm using my co-host for now. Like, what is in it? What's the point of it? And he says, and, but yet, nevertheless, with all of this, I, my case will rest after I say this. I defend my righteousness I defend my morality. I will not lie and accept your simple solution to say that I'm a sinner so that everything may, you know, falls into place. The reason I have these questions is because I'm not a sinner. And I reiterate that. And that's why these questions are such burning questions for me while you, the friends, have no questions at all. 
For them, there is no ideological dilemma at all. They are very comfortable in their skin. This is where Eov rests his case. Okay. Then, again, I'm going into an overview of Elihu's introduction, and then we go back. Elihu comes, he speaks, he says, uh, in chapter 32, he says, okay, you know what? I've had enough. I'm younger than all of you. We'll talk about who Elihu is. I'm younger than all of you. It is not true that with the numbers, with the majority comes wisdom, and it is clearly not true that with age comes wisdom. And everything that all of you are saying, it constitutes echilul Hashem. You, Eov, by speaking and complaining so much, you are sowing doubt in everyone's head about the justice of God, and you have to stop. Second of all, you friends, you have nothing to offer Eov, nothing. Your arguments are worthless. And now it is my turn. And we're going to go into Elihu's argument, what he says, his approach, which is entirely new, and as we said, it's the truth. And it's who Hashem then, you know, Hashem then speaks afterwards. And that's, uh, and that's for, as we said, next week. So now let's go back. So in chapter, in chapter 20, uh, 26, starting with chapter 26, this is Eov saying that he appreciates Hashem much more than they do. And the tone of Chapter 26 is, in the beginning, the first few sukkim is very sarcastic. He says, Vayan Iovayomar, Pasuk Aleph, Me azarta lelo koach, Hoshata zaroa lo oz, he said, What help have you given to one who has no strength? What salvation to one whose arm has no power? Maya atzta lelo chachma, what, have, what, uh, what great advice have you given to one who has no wisdom? The Toshia Larov Hodata, and oh, such substantial knowledge you have made known. You have brought great ideas to light in all your arguments. I'm so impressed. This is all quite sarcastic. And then Eov says, and this is a famous quote, he says, I know, I know HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs this world. And I know that nobody can understand him. And one of the great things that Hashem does that makes everything, proves that everything is just incomprehensible, is Pasuk Vav. Notet Safun al Tohu. He stretches out the north on emptiness. Tole Eret al Blima. He suspends earth upon nothingness. The whole globe is hanging in the middle of nothing. How do you explain that? This earth with people, with life teeming in it, is just hanging there in the middle of space. What is holding it up? What is suspending it? What is supporting it? We don't know what supports life on this earth. We also can't see what is supporting our lives, what is holding our lives up, what is making our lives run. We're in the same predicament. We're in the middle of what we see as absolutely nothing. And here we are in the middle of it. We can't see the forces and the powers that are in play that explain how we exist. Same as the earth itself. By the way, Eov is extremely progressive in this, especially if this is written by Moshe Rabbeinu, because it wouldn't be thousands of years till humanity figured out that the earth is a sphere hanging in the middle of space. They thought it was some type of dome, uh, some type of uh, surface on the waters, 
with a domed roof, you know, they did not know of this for, for millennia. But there's a deeper meaning to Tola Eretz al-Bliman. I heard my grandfather say this with his, you know, personally. He says that, um, he says that the concept of blima is a word, blima, that comes from two words, blima, without anything, without what? So here, Achachamim use this Pasuk, I mean, Pasuk 7, uh, as the basis for a long discussion of a philosophical topic. And, uh, and their Chazal say the following, and I'm in the middle of it, Amar Rabbi Eliezer, I'm sorry, Amar Rabbi Elazar, who is also called Rabbi Elah, Ein Ha'ola Mitkayim, from the word blima. The world exists only because of the merit of one who closes himself up, bolim, closes his mouth at the time of an argument. As the Pasuk says, the world is hanging on nothing. Those who make themselves like nothing. Humility. Don't argue back. Don't have to prove themselves. That's the force. Those are the people that suspend this world, the humble ones. The ones who do what's right, not because they're getting recognition, who do what's right even though they are misjudged, even though they are, they are even uh, you know, criticized unjustly, and this happens all the time. All the time. I'll tell you an example just now. Somebody in our community who is very, very um, important, does a tremendous amount of good work. I, I don't want to go into too many details. So, uh, so somebody said to me, yeah, isn't it strange, though, that, um, that um, you know, he's so involved with this nonprofit organization, and yet he's building himself such a big, beautiful house? I mean, where is, where is he getting the money for this big, beautiful house when... He's, you know, his, he works for this nonprofit organization. I said, I don't know. That's, I don't, I don't know. There's probably a million reasons for it. He says, Yeah. I said, Are you sure he's, he's building himself a big, beautiful house, a fancy house? He says, Yes. Go ask so and so. So I didn't ask so and so, but I went to the person that was spoken about, just casually in conversation. I said, Oh, I heard you're building a, a house. That's nice. So he said to me, What? I'm not building a house. I said, No, you're not. He goes, No, we're not building a house. I don't know what you're talking about. Total sheker. Total sheker. Okay? So what happens is a person who endures this, it's, it, it's the nature of, of the beast, you know, this is how it is. A person who does the right thing and they're humble and they just keep doing the right thing and they don't get the recognition or they even get criticized and they just, they just keep doing it. Those are the people that suspend this world. You know who the people are that are keeping this world going? Those people. Humble people. In fact, it goes even further. The Agada continues. Rabbi Abahu Amar, Ein ha'olam mitkayim. This world exists on no other zuchos. Ela b'zuchot mi shemesim atzmo k'misheino. Okay? Uh, this world exists only on the merit of the person who considers himself as if he does not exist. This is supported by the words of Devarim Shenemar, as it says, Umitachat Zra'ot Olam, from under the arms of the world. The arms which support the world 
are those who are underneath. The arms, that which is holding the world up, are those who are underneath, who make themselves like nothing, who, keep, who don't demand any, any, uh, any of the recognition and, the, uh, and the, anything that leads to pride or importance, those that see themselves here for a task. That's what's holding up the world. Just as physically the universe is held up by nothing, it's the people that have the humility, the, 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 the mida of humility, real true humility, that are public servants with, in, in, in small ways or big ways and demand nothing in return, expect nothing, don't complain when they get nothing. That's the people that are holding up the world. And Eov says he recognizes that we don't get it, that we don't see the real forces that are sustaining everything, not physically and not spiritually. And, uh, and therefore, we don't really know what's, we can't explain the things that are go, going on here. And he says, my point all along, I need you to understand, on here I'm on page 289, my grandfather sums it up and says, Eov is saying to them, my point all along has not been to challenge God, okay? As you all have been saying, how could I, this little maggot that I am, that I know Hashem is incomprehensible, that I know we don't know the forces really that hold this world up. How can I dare to challenge God? However, since God has endowed man with intelligence, I am convinced that Hashem wants man to recognize him and worship him with that intelligence. And notwithstanding that the human brain is limited in its capacity to comprehend Hashem's mind, nevertheless, I want to gain at least something, some understanding with my limited brain of what God is doing to me. This is what he keeps insisting. He wants something. Now, here he goes into his 10th speech, chapter 27, and he sums everything up. So he said, the first is, chapter 27 is, he repudiates his friend's accusations and demands a, he insists that his appreciation of Hashem is much greater than theirs. His, his regard for Hashem and his love for Hashem surpasses theirs. But he says, this is what I end with, okay? Pasuk 5. Chalila li im'atzdik etchen. Far be it from me, chalila, if I justify you, if I give in to your demands and just say, oh, I'm guilty, so that everything fits nicely and neatly into the box. That I will never do. That would be a sin. Because then I'm not dealing with the big questions and no wisdom will be gained from my entire experience. And remember we said last week that even if he doesn't get some type of guidance on this, he hopes that his story will be studied and through time, perhaps, people will learn the lessons that are meant to be learned and get some insight because of him. At least his suffering will have been purposeful. So the last thing he's going to do is just cave. It's easy. Oh, you're right, I'm guilty. And then everything makes sense, all the questions go away. Nobody has to ask anything, and the world keeps going, and everybody judges all the people who are suffering, and life is beautiful. So he says, no, this I will not do. Because he says, I won't ever take your position, which is hypocrisy and flattery. Look in Pasukhes, ki ma tikvas chanif ki yivsa. For what's the benefit of a hypocrite? There's no benefit or hypocrite. All you're doing is, in Pasuk 10, you are flattering God, defending God by claiming to know why God does certain things to certain people. I will not do this. I have rejected this a long time ago, and I will not go back on that. So uh, he goes on to say, 
is in looking Pasuk 23, 20, uh, page 295, he says that um, he says, I understand. Serving Hashem does not depend on understanding him. I get that. The world, we serve Hashem who, who sustains the world without understanding him. And I've never been arguing on the fact that I should be able to understand Hashem. I don't understand them. You understand them even less. I do appreciate Hashem. But what's driving me, as we said, is that I need some, some glimmer. I need some glimmer to help me continue. Okay, in chapter 28, he goes into a description of the limitations, which is reiteration of what he just said, proof of what he just said, a further explanation of what he just said, man's limited intelligence. He says that, um, he gives examples, and he says essentially that, um, he says, Chachma, uh, here, Pasuk 12, Chachma, where is it to be found? It cannot be found. True Chachma of Hashem's ways is beyond understanding. Although HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants human beings to do the best they can and try to understand as much as they can and pursue Chachma at all times and try to serve Hashem out of intellectual appreciation of Hashem. In the end, we all agree that real chachma, real insight cannot be found. Moshe Rabbeinu himself, who could very well be, most probably is the author of this sefer, he dealt with this, the limitations of human chachma. At the end of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, at the very end, he says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ata, with an ayin now, Ata hachelosa laharos laavdechas chvodecha, you're just beginning to show me a glimpse of your kavod. Just now I'm getting a tiny, you know, picture of it. And that's Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of his life. So the human being appreciates that there's no way to understand Hashem's ways, Hashem's wisdom. And Eof knows that, and he loves Hashem anyway, and he will never, ever, ever back off on the love he has for HaKadosh Baruch And Chazal say that Eof served Hashem entirely out of love, which we'll see in a minute. It all came from love. He wanted to be close to Hashem. He felt what he's leading up to here is that, although I know... I can't understand Hashem. And, and yet, understanding is more precious to the human beings than gold and silver. People will give up everything. We'll go through fire just to understand things, to get some knowledge, to get some insight. It's the, what drives us. People will sacrifice everything to understand more deeply. And, uh, and yet... Some, it still remains beyond us, and yet what Eov is, what's driving Eov here to keep pushing, to keep pushing nevertheless for some type of deeper understanding, is as we said, his experience of going from respected to disgraced, and what that leads to is his abject misery that God is just rejecting him, abandoning him, that he, God wants no part of him. And why, why would that be? That's what's forcing you to keep pushing this. How could God abandon me? How, why would he subject me to that ultimate, ultimate pain, which is abandonment? And, um, and that's why, as we said, he can't, he can't let this, uh, he cannot let this go. He wants some type of reassurance that Hashem has not abandoned him. That's what's driving this whole thing. 
So now he goes in to describe in chapter 29 his former life. And uh, he says that my suffering is like a scarlet letter on my head. It's like I'm, he doesn't say that, but he says I'm branded. That was after his time. I'm branded by my suffering as a sinner. That's how they view it. Up till now, this is the best, other than Elihu, that anybody could do. They, this is a proof to them that God is that God hates me. And um, he says that uh, my lost covered, my past covered, that was my, um, that's, you know, had it not been so enormous, I wouldn't be so dejected and I wouldn't be in this situation. Hashem raised him up so high. He had every gift and he used every gift for the right reasons. And he was an angel of mercy for humanity. He was, uh, he was a messenger of all good things. He was a bracha to everyone who came near him. He was God's emissary. There was a, he was the perfect model of what God wants from a human being. Hashem raised him up so high, gave him so many talents, so many brachas, helped him use them correctly so that he could be the person that, you know, that, was, you know, that everybody turned to. And so clearly, when he, when Hashem takes this person and throws him down into the pit, into the swamp, into the ditch full of mud for everybody to trample on as they walk by, that makes no sense. And clearly, the reason that this Sefer is real and is, you know, and Eov deals with the real issues is because only when it happens in this way, when it's this extreme, can you begin to really ask the questions. So, uh, chapter 30, Eov describes his current uh, state, his current disgrace, his loss of standing among his fellow man, the way that the most disgraced people know uh, no, you know, now can, can scorn him. And what he ultimately says is this, and this is, he says, and, not, and, and on top of all of this, and we're in Pasuk, uh, Pasuk um, 24 here, on top of all of this, it's not enough that I have to endure this. And again, I was the angel of mercy. I was the one who, ever, who gave encouragement to everyone. I was the one, and he stresses this, that dignified my lowest servant as a tzela milokim. He says, I knew that we are all equal before God. Nobody is greater than the next, and I treated them like that. I treated everyone with tremendous dignity. So now here I am being treated with no dignity at all. And worse, and on top of all of that, on top of all of that, I beg to die, and even my pleading to die is only met by stony silence. There is no greater proof that I am ignored by God completely. Even to be relieved of my suffering is ignored. And all of this hurts him so deeply, especially because he knows he is innocent, and, uh, and not only him personally, but the loss to humanity of his gifts, the loss to God's own interests, this makes no sense. So he says that um, there can't be a lower point that a human being can, um, can get to.
Hashem cannot have made a clearer example of the innocent, the good, the righteous, enduring tribulations, misery, disgrace, for no apparent reason, and for it to, and for God not even to explain it. It's just, it's the ultimate example. So clearly, because it's the ultimate example, it's the setting for the ultimate questions and the ultimate approaches, the ultimate responses. Pasuk 31, and these are the last of Eov's words. He restates his very high ethical, moral level that he always, that he always um, adhered to. And here he states again, uh, regarding the lowest, the lowest of his servants, the way he would treat them, he says in Pasuk 15 in chapter 31, you know why I treated them with respect? Because I knew, Halo babeten oseni asahu, did he not make me in the belly just as, did he not make him, that other person, in the belly just as he made me? Biachunenu berechem echad, and he, the one, Hashem, made both of us in the womb. In other words, we're all the same. That's why he treated everyone with equality. Right? He was, this is way ahead of his time. He treated every human being as equal to him. So uh, he states that this is something he can't get over. And he said, and the reason I treated everyone with such dignity and the reason people loved me so much is because, Pasuk 23, I was simply unable to act callously towards my fellow man because I knew that I was always in the presence of Hashem's majesty. What drove me is always my awareness of Hashem. All of the stature I achieved, all of the covet I had, all of the influence I had and the power I had because of my covet was, 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 was offered to me. People were willing to listen to me and defer to me because they knew that I was authentic and everything I did was because I knew clearly that I was in the presence of Hashem. I was your representative. So he reiterates this and then he says, that's, that's the end, Tamu divrei Eov. These are the end of Eov's words. He rests his case, and he is still looking for an answer. His friends don't speak again. Now, instead, we are introduced to Elihu. The strangest thing about this person, Elihu, if you have it, look in chapter 32, is that his name, who he is, right? By Yicharaf, Elihu ben Barachel Habuzi. And Elihu ben Barachel Habuzi is angry, vayichar af, be aware that in Tanakh, the phrase vayichar af, his nostrils are flaring, is used exclusively in the case of Avodah Zarah. Therefore, there is an implication here, which we will see in a minute, that Elihu is saying to them, the way you speak, both you, so to speak, friends, who believe, as we said before, that you can judge a person's guilt or innocence by their situation in life, that is paganistic. You think you God is so limited that you can understand him? And Neo, what you're doing at this point is too much. You're sowing doubt. You, can't, you have to get a hold of yourself. You're causing people to start questioning God. So, um, so the reason why Vayichar Af represents Avodah Zorah, paganism, meaning, meaning what do we, it doesn't mean necessarily only bowing down to an idol, but a disbelief in God as the only source of all things. 
in other words, if God, if the concept of other gods is that this cannot possibly be the work of God. It's not, con- it's not consistent with God, so it must be coming from another source. There must be another power at play. I can't imagine that this could be from God. That's what the friends are teetering on very, very closely. If they believe in God's justice and they have no explanation, then where is this coming from? Hmm, right? So, uh, the reason the, the image of the nose flaring is used, and I remember hearing this years ago from Ari Bergman, because in Bereshis, we are told that the neshama of a person was somehow blown into them through their nose. When we inhale, you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, what do you do? You inhale, because it's like trying to take in the grandeur. Vayichar af is the opposite. We experience that there's a much greater forces in, there are much greater forces in play way beyond ourselves, and we express that by a certain inhale. The neshama comes through the neshima, the breath. But when a person is incapable or no longer ready to say that there is so much beyond them, and rather they prefer to say, it's all, it's as limited as I am, and therefore I should be able to explain it, they are expelling that neshama from within them, or they are in danger of expelling their neshama. That's Vayichar'af, the nose flares, and there's an exhale through the nose. That's, God forbid, the neshama in danger of being rejected and expelled from the person. Now, who is Elihu? Okay, so here we go. Um, so, Darash Rabbi Akiva, none other than Rabbi Akiva taught. Elihu Zebilam ben Barachel, Sheba Lekalel es Yisrael uberacham ha'el. His name is Elihu ben Barachel. Barachel comes from the words bracha. He came to give a curse, but bercham ha'el, but God blessed them. Berachel. Habuzi. Why is he called Habuzi? Shahaisa nevuaso bizuya. That is, ultimately, his prophecy was despicable. Not here. Much later when he was Bilam. And why is he called Mimishpachat Ram, as the Pasuk says? Mimishpachat Ram, Min Aram, Yenacheni Balak. As Bilam said, from Aram did Balak come and hire me. So, this little secret, in a sense, because Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says, you shouldn't be revealing this, Rabbi Akiva, is uh, this little secret, my grandfather says, is that Bilam the evil Bilam did not start out as the wicked sorcerer with whom we are familiar, but rather in his good days he was Elihu. The Chachamim tell us that in the non-Jewish world, Bilam reached a level of prophecy almost as great as Moshe Rabbeinu attained in the Jewish world. He was a resident of Aram, which was in Avram Avinu's country of origin. Bilam was among Hanefesh Nefesh Asher Asa Bacharan. Remember, Avraham had influence on all those people in Bacharan before he left and came to Eretz Yisrael and Lech Lecha. Avram influenced many, many great people. In fact, the other three friends are all from Avraham's teacher. You know, speaking off, you know, a, 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 a corrupted version of it, but they were also students of the Abrahamic ideology. 
But Bilam, Elihu, was the greatest of them. And his words are not, not only not contradicted by Hashem, confirmed by Hashem. He knew he was right. Everything Elihu says is correct. So what happened? What happened? The most intelligent person, the person most capable of perceiving truth, can get corrupted by greed and pride. Hubris, arrogance, and greed, which is what happened to Bilam. And he went from being Elihu, look at his name, Elihu, going from being Elihu to being Bilam, for letting his own self-interest distort him and turn him against Bnei Yisrael. However, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says, if the Torah doesn't tell us who he is, you shouldn't disclose it. And he says, I say, he is not Bilham. Elihu is a Yitzchak. He's Yitzchak. Also a Talmud of Avraham, obviously. Ben Barachel. Why is he called Barachel? Not because he wanted to curse, but Hashem blessed. He can't, because Ben Shebercho El. He's the son that God has blessed. Shenemar, as it says about Yitzchak. And Hashem blessed him. Why is he called Habuzi? Not because his prophecies are despicable, but Shabiza es Atzmo Beshas Neka, that he denigrated himself at the moment of the Akedah when he asked Avraham to tie him tighter. And why is he called Meimishpachat Ram, Meimishpachat Avraham? So wait a second. He's Bilam or he, he's Yitzchak. So my grandfather explains what Chazal are trying to say here is. Avraham taught the world. He was Av Hamon Goyim, father of many nations. Much of his ideas are for the entire world. They have the Shevim Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, and they are expected to be Abrahamatic in their thinking. The whole world is supposed to be influenced by Avraham's thinking about Chesed, about Ashkach Pratis, about God's interest, about all these subjects right here. And then there is that from the legacy of Avram that is uniquely for the Jews. The machlokis here between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Elizabeth Nazariah is, are the lessons in Sefer Eov lessons that the entire world is expected to know and absorb and operate according to? In which case, Elihu, who is expressing the truth, is the Navi of the Goyim, and therefore these messages are entirely for them also. Or is this a madrega, what Elihu explains, these ideas about a Kodesh Baruch Hu, this high madrig of accepting Hashem despite the, uh, the suffering in, in humanity, are these understandings exclusively for the Jewish people? And we can't expect or demand the non-Jews to appreciate them. And therefore they're left with challenging God and never being able to understand that there could be something called Yisurim Shalava, suffering coming from love, to build a person, to bring a person to a higher madriga. And these great sublime ideas that we're about to hear, they're just for the Jews. This is the machlokas. Okay? Rabbi Kiva says, these messages are for humanity. Everybody must operate according to this. No, these are not just for the Jewish people. Okay? This is for everyone. Or Elizabeth Nazariah says, it's too much for everybody. It's for the Jewish people. This is a great machlokas. The resolution is that there's no question that the Jews are definitely expected to think according to what we're about to learn. And the more the non-Jews elevate themselves and are taught to think that way too, the better. But for the Jews, it's the default position. We must operate from here. We, can't, we cannot ignore the messages of Sefer Eov. They're our starting point. So here we are now in...
uh, chapter 32. And uh, there's so much in this chapter. He uh, is very upset. And he says to them, everything you all are saying constitutes, either way you do it, it's a chil Hashem. And he says, I cannot allow the friends' arguments to stand. They're not true at all. And if Eov's assertions of absolute innocence and his complaints are allowed to stand, one could come to the conclusion that Eov was treated unjustly by God, and this angered Elihu. And he says that uh, I am here to, to uh, now do, to fix the problem, which is a kid Achil Hashem, which is about to, which is happening here. By the way, many say that this all, this whole dialogue happened in front of an audience. He says that we have to turn this Chil Hashem into a Kiddush Hashem. I have an approach that I will be very clear about. I will not do like you all did and speak in the third person. I will call Eov directly by name. I will be very clear about what I'm about to say, and I will finally bring some clarity here. And he goes on to say that, um, that uh, you know, what's happening here is because everybody thinks that their position is correct, and none of you are correct. And this is essentially what he says in 32. And... Um, And then he goes on to 33. Now, 33 brings up so many philosophical issues, so many approaches that we have to integrate. First of all, he says, this is his first new idea. He says, I'm going to say things that are just, that you haven't heard before. Okay? There is another approach. So look in chapter 33. We might have to go a few minutes over. Pasuk Yud Gimel. He says, Madua Elav Rebot. Why do you have a battle with him? Why do you contend with Hashem? And these are the new words, the first time we're hearing something new. He says, Kikol Dvarav Lo Yedaber El Lo Yishurema. He says, This is the problem. This is why do you why do you keep fighting with Hashem? He does many things. He has many dvarim, dvarav. When we say his words, his messages. He called dvarav lo yanet. A dvar Hashem is not just Hashem, as we, Hashem says something. What we mean when we say vayadavar Hashem, Hashem said something. Is Hashem's will went out into the world. When Hashem speaks, when I speak now, the objective of my speaking is that what's in my head, what I'm thinking should become discoverable to you, and you should be able to know it. When we say Hashem speaks, it means he acts in the world, he operates, he unleashes certain realities, and we can discover the will of Hashem by looking at the realities in the world. Hashem is discoverable in the world through nature, through the survival of the Jewish people, through history. You know, we see Hashem is the presence of Hashem and his guidance of the world is discoverable. That's called Dvarav, his Dibor, what he does. He says, Kikol Dvarav, Lo Yanet. But all of the things he does, he does not explain the answer. Yes, once in a while he does explain what he's doing. In other words, he makes it clear. He makes it very discoverable to humanity. Kiba'achas, Yedaber El. Once, here and there, he does speak in a way that you hear it clearly. But twice, he doesn't clarify. Not the other times. In other words, Elihu is saying, the first 
position I want to take. The first thing we have to clarify here, forget about trying to understand the Shem. We already did, everyone's in agreement now. Eov himself, we cannot understand the Shem. Okay, so now what? What is the problem? Why don't we just leave it at that? Why don't we just leave it? I don't understand the Shem. That's the end of the Sefer. Goodbye. So he says, this is the problem. The reason you're having such trouble, Eov, even though you know that you can't understand the Shem, and of course you're questioning now this, this, this change in your status, which makes no sense at all, and your feelings of abandonment and rejection, etc. The reason you can't just say, well, I don't understand Hashem is that we know that if nothing Hashem ever did made any sense to us, we wouldn't question. Or if we lived in a world where every single thing made sense, we wouldn't question. But the problem is that most of the time we do see Hashem's hand. We do see Hashgacha Pratis in our lives. We do see Nisim Nistarim all the time. Look at you, Eov. He goes on to say a little later. Look at your previous life. You saw Hashem's hand everywhere. You knew exactly why Hashem put you in those positions that he put you in, and you did good with them. You did the right thing. You never questioned Hashem's Hashgacha because it made sense to you. And a lot of the time, it does make sense on a personal level and on a national level. And therefore, when something happens that's so contradictory, that's so from left field, there's one thing that does not fit in that's a total violation of everything we know to be true. That throws us off. It's because most of the time we do see Hashem's hand. We do understand what Hashem is doing. We appreciate how Hashem is running the world. And then there are big incidents, big ones, that, and they last for a few years or a few days, or, and they violate everything we, we, we know, and that's the problem. So he says, so we have to come to terms that Hashem runs this world with a gazillion calculations. Once in a while he explains himself, but not always. Why does Hashem explain himself sometimes? And we'll, explain, we'll give example of two times. Because humanity, and this is the chiddish, Humanity, what Hashem wants from us is to operate not like little babies whose parent is right by their side showing them all the time why, you know, what to do. Hashem wants, up to, wants us to operate in this world with emuna that Hashem knows what he's doing and to go forward despite the fact that things don't make sense. Not to operate with Hashem constantly doing open miracles and revealing to us exactly what he's doing and why. Because then what would be the challenge of a person to have love for Hashem, have connection to Hashem, trust Hashem? It's like a child and a parent. A parent wants to back off and recede and give the child space to be who they are, not because the parent is controlling them and hovering over them and interfering every second, but because they can be trusted to be a great person and do the right thing even when there's no one there to jump in and save them when they're about to make a mistake. Really, we're supposed to operate with, on our own as gods, as Tzelem Elohim, as creators of reality and truth. And sometimes to help us when we're drifting and we're confused, then Hashem comes in and shows us, gives us a glimpse of, of, of what's really going on. But that's the... That's the yotzei min That shouldn't be the cloud. That's the exception, not the rule. 
Mostly he doesn't explain himself. Once in a while he will. Here's a good example. Avraham was always compared to Eve. Regarding the destruction of Sodom, Hashem says, Will I hide from Avram what I'm about to do? In other words, God is saying, I am now going to explain to Avraham exactly how I conduct the world and why. I'm going to explain to him, Sadiq Varalo, right now I'm going to tell him I'm going to destroy Sodom, and I'm there over Shayim, and I'm going to let Avraham figure it out on his own that it's right. And Avraham said, you're sure, and he right? Avram said, how could you? That doesn't seem just. Hashem says, okay, prove to me it's not just. And Avram says, 50 tzaddikim, 40 tzaddikim. In the end, Avram has to accept, has to concede that it was just, totally just. There was nobody there that was worth salvaging, literally no one besides, besides Lot, who wasn't worth salvaging, either so much except for his descendant, Rus. Okay? And he was salvaged on the zechus of Avram. I shouldn't say that. Maybe he had a few zechus, but it was seen as Avram zechus, and Rus came from it. But the point here is, Avram got to see. However, the next episode in the Chumash is the Akedah. And Avram doesn't say a peep. Not a word, because there Hashem doesn't say, I'm going to tell Avram what I'm doing. So once in a while, Hashem does explain himself. <coughs> once, yes, by Sodom. But the second time, by Akedah, no. There's another fundamental idea that I must share with you. That my grandfather explains in the Mayan Beis of the Chumash Sefer. Every time you see somebody, which is very few times, arguing with Hashem, Avraham by Sodom, who says, Chalila lecha, how far, far be it from you to be so unjust. Or Moshe, who says to Hashem, after Paro made the work harder, after, right? How, what are you doing? How could you be so cruel to this nation? From the time I came to speak in your name, you haven't saved them. How could a person speak like this? And unfortunately, human beings who don't read Torah carefully think from these two ex- examples that there's a license for a human being to put God on trial like you know who used to say, but he did tshuva and he said he doesn't, he doesn't speak like that anymore. Right? Um, after the Holocaust, Elie Wiesel. He did tshuva publicly in the New York Times. He doesn't speak like that anymore. He doesn't put God on trial. Now he has rahmanas for God, for what humanity did to him. In any way, um, in any case, the people that think they could take this as an example and put God on trial are missing the fact that Avram didn't say a word at the Akedah. And the Moshe didn't say a word in other circumstances. So why only in these? And my grandfather explains, every time you see a case of a person questioning God's ways, you see before that that Hashem uses a particular word to explain that the, the permission he's giving for humanity to question him. Hashem says by Sodom, Erdana, I will come down and see about this, this screaming I'm hearing emanating from Sodom. By Mitzrayim, by the Sneh, he says to Moshe, Ve'ered l'hatzilo, I'm going to come down and save them. Hashem is not a liquid or a solid or a gas that moves from place to place or is concentrated here or less concentrated there. So what does Ve'ered, that Hashem comes down? It means, metaphorically, Hashem's infinite knowledge, the fact that Hashem is completely transcendent and we have no capacity to comprehend Him, that our lower minds are blocked from understanding Hashem because there are mechitzas in place. Hashem will dissolve those mechitzas for a moment and be, allow His conduct of the world, his, his governance of the world, to come down, so to speak, into the human mind and be understood or discovered by the human mind. He will be lowered, so to speak, 
into the sphere of human understanding for a moment in this case. And then it says, Vayal Hashem, Hashem went back up. That means, and after that there's no word. Only when it says, Vayeraid, only when it says, Vayeraid, does a human being have a right to question. The reason we can question Hashem and the Torah, all the mitzvahs in the Torah, the reason when you go into a base medrash and everybody's answer back and forth is because it says, Vayeraid Hashem al Har Sinai. That's why we can ask these questions. That's why we can question. But questioning only to the extent that, you know, Hashem allows us, and Elihu is coming in here and saying, enough, enough with this. There, I need somebody has got to say something that's going to put you, stop all of this because this is turning into a chil Hashem. So that's his first introduction. His first main idea in 33 is, sometimes yes, mostly no. And then he says to, to them, see, the problem with the human being is, that when things go our way, when things go our way, we're very happy to call, call it hashgacha pratis, this just ends. But when things don't go our way, suddenly we start questioning. Look, look, look at you at your previous life. You were so sure it was all beautiful. So what, why is it now, now hashgacha pratis? What happened? Just because it's something that you don't want, so suddenly it's not hashgacha pratis anymore? It's all the same, whether we understand it or not. And... Um, and then he says the following in chapter 33. Famous, famous, we use this when we do Kaparas on Erev Yom Kippur. He, sees, he gives an example of, of a person. Here's a classic example of a person who does see Hashgacha in his life and why, why sometimes Hashem will suddenly in, you know, kind of like interfere in a person's life and give them that glimpse, that understanding. So he tells about a person who is depressed. He's lost all interest in life. He has gone from... Uh, from, from misery to apathy to hopelessness to losing all, all sense of pride, he's, he's completely reduced. And then what happens? He has no reason to live, and Elihu's going to say, it's because he doesn't deserve to live anymore. And so Hashem takes away from him his, any, life, any interest in living, he falls into a depression, becomes completely uh, desolate, and, uh, and, and that's because he has many sins. Okay? And, and it's all correct, it's all just. So then, Pasuk Chav But then what happens? Im yesh alav, malach melitz echad, mini alef, lahagid la'adam yeshro. V'yechunenu v'yomer p'de'ehu miredet, shachat, matzati kofer. But then, there is a one interceding angel out of thousands who plead his cause, testifying to his righteousness, and he says, save him, save him from going down to destruction. I have found a ransom for his soul. Elihu is saying, you know what? Sometimes you have a person who really, al-pidin, he doesn't deserve to be given the life force anymore. And he's at the end. But one malach, meaning the person's malach, one mitzvah the person did, preciously, one, if a person cherished one mitzvah above all, the Rambam says also, and did that mitzvah with great love and, and, and devotion all the time, that mitzvah will come out of thousands of negative malachim that the person created by Zaveris, and save him and said, I found ransom, save him, and Hashem will give the person back life. Once in a while, a person has, has, uh, gets a glimpse, once in a while a person gets a glimpse of Hashem's Ashkach HaPratis, either we can interpret this Pasuk as once, once he sees it, a thousand times he doesn't, 
once he sees one mitzvah can come to save him out of a thousand averis, you do see Ashkachot sometimes when a Kaddish Baruch Hu takes everything into calculation, everything, and through Midas HaChesed, lets one merit bring the person back to life. That's Ashkachot you can sometimes see. But it's, it's one minute in a lifetime. One minute in a whole lifetime. It all comes together. That's all we get here. We don't get more than that. Okay? We only get these, these, like my grandfather says, like a cloudy day, and for a moment the clouds part and you see the sun. That's really our predicament. Um, because what a Kaddish Baruch Hu wants here is that we operate, we employ powers of emuna and bitachon, not constantly saying, Hashem, do something. Hashem, prove it. Hashem, do a miracle. Save me. We have to operate differently. Hashem considers us adults, like him. And he says, the reasons that Hashem does break into a person's life, and with this we're going to end at the end of 33, is to help them at moments when they're really weak. In other words, hashgacha and seeing Hashem's ways is not the standard operation. The standard operation is Hashem concealing himself, and we operate with great emuna, which we, Hashem has done enough for the Jewish people up till now to prove to us that we should trust him despite the challenges and the big, terrible tragedies that have happened. The miracle of Jewish survival speaks for itself. And Hashgach uh, in everyone's life. So he says, that's the norm. But you know when Hashem does show himself, which you beg, you're begging so much for Hashem to show himself, but you have to learn the lesson. This is a lesson for all humanity. Do you know when Hashem does show himself? In moments, to help a person who's faltering because... Because, you know, because their amuna is, is, is not strong enough. So in other words, when Hashem bursts into a person's life and explains himself, that might not be necessarily a good sign. You know, that, that is to help a person so that their neshama reattaches to Hashem, reconnects, and they, uh, and they um, can go on and ensure that they don't lose their attachment to eternity. The stronger a person is the less Hashem has to come in and explain himself. Now, what Hashem did to Eov was extreme, clearly. Extreme. And the whole story is presented to us to show us, in the extreme, how much it is that what Hashem wants from us. Nobody is tested the way Eov is tested. Nobody. Even the people who went to the gas chambers in the Holocaust went with dignity and pride and a sense of you know, purposefulness. And, uh, and that, was, that Eov didn't even have. So the tests of Eov show us that if this is what Hashem demanded of Eov, kal v'chomer everybody else. Kal v'chomer everybody else. To understand that the way Hashem operates is like this. And once in a while we get a glimpse. Mostly we don't. That shouldn't in any way cause us to make these silly mistakes that God is punishing someone or that God hates someone, or that God has rejected someone, or that God isn't watching, he's going to go on to say, God watches you, God knows everything, Hashem is compassionate, you haven't been rejected, he, sh- he continues on in that vein, and uh, he silences both Eov and the friends. So, as we said, everything's in Eov, everything's in the Sefer. Everything is in the Sefer. Mirza Hashem, we will continue next week.